Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about the annoying yellow smiley face. Mm-mm-mm. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today we are talking about cooking with your head and your heart. And my first guest originally joined me in March of 2016, Kenji Lopez-Alt. My next guest is Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's a food science writer and the managing culinary director of SeriousEats.com author of The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science, which is a New York Times bestseller, and the James Beard Award-nominated column, The Food Lab. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including The Wall Street Journal, The Boston Globe, Wired Magazine, and Men's Health. He lives in San Francisco with his wife, Adriana, and two dogs, Hamon and Shabu. His first book, The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science, is available wherever books are sold at nearly 1,000 pages with 300 foolproof recipes. It's a grand tour of the science of cooking explored through popular American dishes, illustrated in full color with thousands of photographs, charts, graphs, and do-at-home experiments. Ooh, I like it. Welcome, Kenji. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I am a, I'm a foodie. My family's a foodie. We like to cook. We like to eat. We like to hang out and talk about food. Excellent. Excellent. So, so let's talk about the mythology of some of the cooking techniques that are out there. There are a lot okay. of myths, right? There are a lot of myths, yeah. Um, I don't know. Where do you want to start? I mean, I guess we're, we're in Texas right now, so we can start with uh, some of the myths around steaks because there oh. are a lot of those. Yes. Let's go for it. <laughs> All right. I mean, you, you hear a lot of things. Um, one, one of the big ones is you'll hear is that um, is that you should only flip your steaks once while you're cooking them. Um, and I think the idea for this comes from um, comes from the idea that people think by flipping it multiple times, uh, you don't get as nice a sear on it, um, or maybe the inside doesn't cook as evenly. Um, but it's actually it's actually quite the opposite. Um, and and you can prove this uh, both experimentally just by doing it yourself. You know, take two steaks, put them on the grill, 
one of them just flip once while you're cooking and the other one flip every 30 seconds or so. Um, and what you'll find is that the one that you're flipping um, frequently will actually uh, cook more evenly. That is, there's going to be less of that overcooked meat around the exterior. Um, it's going to cook more evenly than the ones that you flip only once. And it's also going to cook about 30% faster. Um, and on top of that, it's also going to develop a really nice crust uh, at just about the same rate. So it's actually better to flip your steaks multiple times. Although, you know, really in the end, I think the one rule about, about going to a, a backyard barbecue or backyard cookout is that you don't want to mess with the person uh, who's, who's tending the fire because <laughs> I, I think they're, they're the ones in charge. So if they want to just flip it once, don't argue with them. Um, you know, with the other the other big one with steak is that people will always tell you, uh, and, and a lot of big chefs will tell you this too, is that you want to take your steak out of the fridge early and let it sit at, uh, let it come to room temperature before cooking. Um, and you know, there, there's there's a couple problems there. Um, the, the first one is that if you have if you've got a nice thick steak, and I, you know, generally if I'm going to eat steak, which doesn't happen that often, but if I'm going to eat a steak, I want it to be a nice thick one. Um, you know, if, if you have a nice thick steak, it takes a very very long time for it to actually come to room temperature. You can leave a steak out. Uh, from the fridge on your counter, you can leave it out on the counter for about two hours, um, and it internal, its internal temperature will only rise by about 10 degrees or so, which is not very much. Um, and and the, the, the more important part to consider is that um, when you're searing a steak, um, the, th the thing that helps a, ste a steak sear fastest, um, the, the problem with searing a steak is not really the is beginning, is not really the starting temperature, it's actually the, uh, the starting moisture. So it's not about how, how warm the surface of the steak is. It's about how dry the surface of the steak is. Um, to, to put it in perspective, um, even if you start with a steak that uh, is coming straight out of a fridge at 32 degrees, say the, the fridge at the coldest setting, 32 degrees, um, the amount of energy it takes to bring that steak from 32 degrees up to 212 degrees um, Fahrenheit, which is when the water on the surface is going to start uh, evaporating, the amount of energy it takes to bring it up from 32 all the way to 212, um, it takes... It takes 50 times more energy to then uh, evaporate the moisture from the surface of that steak. And you can't really get any browning done until that moisture is evaporating. So uh, honestly, the starting temperature of the steak is almost negligible. It really has to do more with the starting, um, the surface moisture of the steak. So if you want to have the best steak ever, one that browns really efficiently so that you get a nice dark crust on it without overcooking the inside, um, you want to make sure it's dry. So if, if, you're, if you're starting with a fresh steak and you want to cook it right away, that means patting it dry with paper towels really well. Um, or better yet, if you, have, if, you, if you do a little bit of planning, uh, you can take that steak, put it on a rack, uh, and sit, set it in your fridge uncovered uh, overnight or even up to a couple nights um, so that the surface dries out. And then when you, when you have that steak, it's going to brown really fast, and it's going to be the best steak you've ever cooked. You know, I, I didn't know that about the moisture, but I did know about the multiple flipping. I am a multiple mm -hmm. flipper because I did oh, run that experiment myself. And oh, great. Yeah. I, I, I discovered that. Let's talk about eggs because this is another popular product that many of us um, uh, keep in our fridge for way mm -hmm. past that expiration date. What's, what's, <laughs> what's, the, story, what's the story with eggs and, and expiration dates? Well, you know, expiration dates, um, and, and this, is, this is true across the board for food, you know, expiration dates are always an approximation um, because it's, it's impossible for food manufacturers to know um, – a, well, you know, A, eggs are not all identical. They come, from, they come from different hens. They come from different parts of the country. They come from different hen houses. They're shipped in different ways. Um, so the eggs are not all identical. So it's really hard to give an exact expiration date across the board. And more importantly, you know, the eggs are treated differently in, in transport. So some of them might be kept a little bit colder. So one of, one of the um, supermarkets might have their fridge set a couple degrees colder. And then once you bring it home, you know, who knows how you're treating it. Maybe it takes you 
an extra hour to bring them home or an extra two hours, or maybe your fridge is colder than your neighbor's. So expiration dates are always really just a, um, just an approximation. Um, um, you know, they, they should really say best used by instead of, instead of expiration, um, I think. But, you know, the, the way you tell your eggs, um, the freshness of your eggs, um, the easiest way I know is to just put them into a cup of water. Um, and uh, so, you know, as eggs... You know, the, the eggshell seems like it's impermeable, but it actually uh, it actually allows moisture to escape from the inside. So as eggs get older, uh, they do lose moisture at a pretty regular rate. Um, and what that means is that the uh, the air bubble that's in the, the that air pocket that's in the fat end of the egg. You know, when you boil an egg and you get that little dimple in the fat end, that's yes. caused by an air that's caused by an air pocket in the fat end of the uh, of the egg. And as the egg gets older, that air pocket gets bigger and bigger because the moisture leaves the egg. So when you put an egg in a glass of water. Um, if it sinks to the very bottom uh, and lies flat on its side, um, that means that it's pretty fresh. Um, if it starts to stand up or even stand perfectly, you know, stand straight up with the uh, fat end on the top, that means that that air bubble has gotten pretty big and, uh, and, your, and your egg is uh, starting to get a little bit old. If it, if it completely floats to the top, then, then you probably want to get rid of it. Maybe just throw it at your neighbor or something like that. But you, uh, you don't <laughs> want to use an egg that floats. Got it. You know, I did not know that. We we buy our eggs from our farmers market, right? And mm-hmm. they're not they are not date stamped. So I always say to the to the farmer, like, how long will these last? And he says, Oh, they're going to last you a month. And I'm like, A month? And he goes, Yeah, don't worry about it. And <laughs> oh, I'm eggs, like, Eggs last a very long time. They do. You know, even even eggs that you buy at the supermarket, um, you'll find. So the, um, the 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 expiration date that's stamped on the egg. Um, it's typically, it can be anywhere up to, well, anywhere from zero to up to 30 days after the egg was placed in that carton. So that's already one month. And the eggs are actually allowed to be placed in that carton one month after they're, up to 30 days after they're laid. Um, so even even according to the, the loosest government standards, eggs can be up to 60 days old and they're still fine. In reality, you know, eggs are going to last, will probably last up to three or four months in your fridge as long as you keep them cold. Wow, I you know this this is this is good information. What about butter? You know, like some people keep their butter on the counter, and some people mm-hmm. keep their butter in the fridge. What's the deal with that? Well, you know, keeping keeping butter on the counter is a good idea if you if you if you go through it regularly, and you, and you say you have your toast or your English muffin every morning, and you and you want to take that butter and you want it to be spreadable. Um, butter on the counter, you know, butter does go does go bad though. Um, a couple things can happen to it. It can go it can go rancid, um, which is uh, something that attacks. Um, the, the fat molecules itself, it'll go rancid in the same way that uh, oil that's left uh, exposed to light or, or too close to your stove will go rancid. And that kind of creates a sort of fishy smell to it. Um, butter also has a good amount of water in it um, uh, and protein. And, and both of those things can lead to uh, bacteria, um, bacteria or mold. So, so butter, butter, can, uh, butter can go bad, although, you know, it's, it's quite, quite high in fat. And particularly if it's salted butter, um, salted butter uh, is a pretty inhospitable environment for bacteria. So it'll, it'll last probably um, at least a week or so at room temperature uh, left out on the counter. But, you know, if you are the type of person who uses it every day, then, then you know who you are and it's probably okay to leave it out on the counter. If, if, you, only want, if, you, if you basically only use your butter for baking or things like that, then you probably want to keep it in the fridge. Got it. There is nothing like good soft butter, though, when you're buttering your toast or your veggies. Oh, yeah. oh it's good. <laughs> it's good. But, you know, many of us are scared to leave it out on the counter. So yeah. that, that's good to know. That's well, really like, good You to know, know what I like to use um, at home is one of those, um, those inverted bells with the, with the water seals. You know, I, those those will keep your butter fresher much longer than um, than a butter dish with a with a cover will, because the butter dish allows a, a lot more air circulation. Um, you, uh, you know the ones I'm talking about, right? Yes. Kind of yes. Soften the butter, put it in the bell, and put it upside down. Those, those work a lot better than a regular butter dish. What What are some other myth busting tips? 
<laughs> Other myth-busting tips. Uh, well, let's see. You know, one, one thing I think people do uh, quite often is um, they cook their pasta in way too much water. Um, and, and this is something that you, um, you will hear all the time from um, uh, Italian chefs or other, other chefs on TV, um, that you should use a huge volume of pasta to cook your water, uh, uh, water to cook your pasta. I think most people will say you want about a gallon of water to cook a pound of pasta in. Um, this is, this is true if, uh, if you're cooking fresh pasta, uh, you do want to do this. Or if you're cooking a very, very sort of high-end brand of pasta that has been naturally dried and extruded uh, using traditional methods, um, you know, one of the more, one of the very expensive high-end import brands, you, then you, you do want to use a large volume of pasta because they can, uh, they can expel uh, a lot of starch that will get them sticky. But most of the pasta you're buying in the supermarket, um, you know, your Berea or any of your sort of standard American supermarket pastas, um, they don't need to be cooked in a lot of water because they don't actually release that much starch. Um, you can cook, a, you can cook um, pasta basically in just enough water to cover it. Um, and the other thing is that the water doesn't even really need to be boiling to begin with. You can put your pasta covered in tap water, put it on the stove uh, and bring it to a boil. And in blind taste tests, um, it comes out exactly the same as if you boiled it in a huge volume of water. Um, th there are other advantages, actually, to cooking in a small volume of water. You know, I, I come from California, where right now we're in the middle of a drought. Um, and so for me, using water is actually quite expensive because they, they charge you for your they charge you quite a bit for your water these days. Um, so, so it's good. It saves me money. Um, it also saves energy because you don't have to bring a huge pot of water to a boil. Um, also time, obviously. Um, and, and more importantly, it, it'll make your, it'll make your pasta taste better because, um, you, you know, you've heard the trick of taking, uh, some of the, some of the pasta water and adding it to the sauce, um, while you're tossing the sauce with the pasta. Um, and, and the idea there is that the starch, uh, that's released by the pasta as it's cooking, um, it gets into that pasta water. And then when you add that starch to the sauce, um, it's going to thicken it up um, in the same way that like a roux will thicken up a gravy. Um, uh, the starchy pasta water is going to help thicken up that sauce and get it to cling to the uh, cling to the pasta better. Um, and so when you use a smaller volume of water, you actually get a much higher concentration of those uh, extracted ah. starches. And so it gets, it's going to make the sauce uh, cling to the pasta even better. So when I cook pasta, small volume of water um, and, it, and it works just much, much better in almost every respect. We're going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, I would love to talk a little bit about using sound as a guideline for proper cutting and cooking techniques. Cause I had not Great. heard of this. This is, this is one of your other tips that, uh, is available in your book, The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science. Um, to learn more about Kenji's work, please visit the Food Lab Recipes on Facebook. On Twitter, Kenji can be found at The Food Lab. And the website is KenjiLopezAlt.com. Wait, wait. Before we go to the break, I want to talk about snacks. I don't know about you, but I'm somebody that constantly snacks during the day. And I am I throw bars in my bag and other snack foods. And one that I've been really enjoying is RX Bar, which is Whole food protein bars with simple, real ingredients. And RX Bar's core ingredients do all the talking. It's simply like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds with no BS. This is real food, ladies and gentlemen, and it actually tastes good. You can actually taste the cacao, the fruit, the spices, the nuts. So whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there's an RX bar for you. RX bars come in 11 delicious flavors, and they are gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free. There's no added sugar, no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or fillers. Egg whites are the protein source, 
dates to bind everything, and nuts for texture. RX bars are great for every occasion. Breakfast on the go, snack at the office, throw in your bag for the airplane, toss in your backpack for a bike ride or a hike, or eat it before or after that workout. Egg white protein stands out as a source of protein that's easy for your body to absorb. I personally love the one that is apple and blueberry. I'm really enjoying it, and I think you will too. And for listeners of Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, if you go to rxbar.com slash happiness and enter the promo code happiness at checkout, you will receive 25% off your first order. Once again, that's rxbar.com slash happiness and enter the promo code happiness at checkout. Now here come those tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about food. Yummy. With my guest, Kenji Lopez-Alt, in his interview that first aired in March of 2016. Let's join the conversation. We're talking about eating our way to happiness with healthy foods and creative cooking. And with me now is Kenji Lopez-Alt. He is the Managing Culinary Director of SeriousEats.com and the author of The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science, which happens to be a New York Times bestseller. And he also um, writes the column, which has been nominated for a James Beard Award, the Food Lab. So, Kenji, you are giving us all kinds of myth busters about the foods and cooking techniques prior to our break. And now I want to talk about another one, and that is the use of sound. Great. Yeah. Sound is, sound is very important in the kitchen. Talk about it. I mean, I know about like melons, shaking your, you know, melons at the grocery store and, you know, this sort of thing, but, or or tapping on the melons, you know. Right, right, right. I don't think you want to shake your melons at the grocery store. No. Well, I don't Uh, want to shake my melons at the grocery store, but the melons that I might be purchasing, I, I, you know what I'm saying. Anyway, talk about sound. 
Um, you know, th- this is something that I learned very early on in my cooking career. Um, one, one of my very first cooking jobs, um, I was working at a restaurant in Boston. Um, and on the first day of that job, um, they, uh, I, you know, I was, I was a line cook uh, in, on the Garde Manger station. And one of my jobs was to uh, slice chives. Um, and I had to slice chives for every person on the line. So it was, a, you know, a lot of chives I had to go through. Um, and I was there slicing chives probably for about half an hour. Um, and then the chef's, chef walks by me, um, behind me, didn't even look down at my cutting board. But um, just as she's walking by, she says, Kenji, you're cutting those wrong. And um, she didn't even have to look. She just knew just by hearing the sound that the chives were making as I was cutting them. And then she looked at them, and, she, and sure enough, all the chives were kind of crushed instead of sliced. And so she um, she dumped all the chives into the garbage and, and showed me how to properly slice them, and I had to, and I had to start over again. Um, the, the, the thing I was doing wrong um, was that you know when, when you're trying to cut something very delicate, like, say, scallions or herbs um, or, or chives like that um, – if you have a sharp knife, no matter how sharp your knife is, um, if you don't give it enough lateral motion, um, you end up kind of crushing instead of slicing. Um, so, so if you go really straight up and down um, on a scallion, and you can try this at home with a sharp knife, just go straight up and down on a scallion, it will cut through, um, but you'll end up kind of rupturing a lot of the um, a lot of those scallion cells, um, and this can make the this can make the scallion smell really uh, really pungent and really strong, which is not really what you want. You want it to have a more sort of delicate and sweet aroma. Um, you don't want to crush those. You don't want to crush those cells. You want to slice through them cleanly. Um, so by using a lot of horizontal motion, um, you know, really slicing and pulling your knife backwards slowly across the uh, across the scallions or chives, um, you end up sli- uh, crushing fewer cells. You end up with much nicer looking slices, um, and they actually taste better as well. Um, so that, you know that that's one where, one case where if you, if you hear your you know if you hear that sort of like sound going on, yeah, yeah. Um, it means you're probably uh, you're probably not slicing with enough lateral motion because you really want it to see it sound more like, um, you know, like a, like a ninja's razor blade uh, to the throat, something a like crisp that. cut. <laughs> like we're like, you're, you're actually hearing the blade hit the wood or the, or the, the plastic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get um, it. I get it. And I, you know, I, I, I'm admitting that I am a, a, a sloppy chopper. Clearly. <laughs> Well, wow. <laughs> I know. I, you know, my, my kids forgive me. My family forgives me. You know, it's like the, the food looks good, but I do notice the difference when I don't get a, a crisp cut. And I mm-hmm. attributed to that, to the, to the knives, not mm-hmm. the technique that well, I would have it, sharp knives. Part of it is the knives. Yeah. Part of it, you definitely do want a sharp knife to start with. Um, but even with the world's sharpest knife, if you don't, if you don't uh, pull across uh, the board and just go straight up and down, um, you end up with a, a crushed uh, you'll, you'll end up with crushed vegetables instead of instead of sliced vegetables. Um, the the other big place where where, where sound comes in into play every day um, when you're cooking is uh, is when you're sautéing or searing things. Um, and you know there's there's a big difference in the sound between something that is sizzling and fat, something you know something that um, is really searing and browning uh, versus something that is sort of steaming. Um, so for instance, if you're talking about like say um, a pork chop or like a, a chicken breast or something like that. Um, you, and you want to get some nice brown color on the outside. If you put it into your pan and you hear and you hear it kind of uh, uh, either if you, well, if you hear no sound at all, that's bad. But if you hear it kind of steaming and kind of sputtering instead of like a really sharp crackle, um, you know that your pan is probably not hot enough, and you, you want to take it out right away and wait for your pan to heat up a little bit more. Um, and, and similarly, say similarly say you're um, sautéing some vegetables uh, to begin, like a soup or a stew or something like that. You've got you know carrots, onions, and celery. Uh, inside your Dutch oven, you're going to make a stew. You're going to make a stew, um, and you're cooking them in oil. Um, at the beginning, you're going to you're going to hear like a very gentle sort of sputtering and sizzling noise. Um, 
as the moisture in those vegetables starts to dry out, um, it's the, the sound is going to get sharper and sharper and sharper until eventually it's going to be a really sharp sizzle, and that's the sound of frying. Um, and you know, and, and, and that's a really great audio cue, you know that at the point that it starts becoming that really sharp sizzle, um, that that's when the vegetables are going to actually start browning, because vegetables can't really brown until most of their moisture has been, uh, their surface moisture has been driven off. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 really, it's really good, because if, if you're over working in some other part of the kitchen, um, and you're very sort of keeping a lazy eye on the pot, you can use your ears and, and, and hear at what stage the vegetables are at. So once, the, once they start getting the sharp sizzle, you know, okay, my vegetables are starting to brown, and then you can decide, you know, do I want my vegetables to brown, or, or should I maybe go over there right now um, and start adding my other ingredients or adding my liquid to that pot? So this really talks about how we use our senses. You know, we know that the food and the senses is, of course, very integrated. But mm-hmm. in terms of preparing food, um, we really need to be using all of our senses. It's not just about, you know, sitting there stirring the stuff. It's really about paying attention in ways that we wouldn't normally Absolutely, think to pay yeah. attention, you know, like Absolutely. with our eyes or our nose. The sound is great. Great, great tip. Any others? Well, you know, I mean, talking about talking about your senses, um, I think I, I think one just gen- tip and tip in general is to really make sure that you do rely on your senses. And 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 you know, a good a good recipe will tell you um, what you should be looking for, or what you should be what you should be hearing for. Because you know, an- anybody who cooks with just a timer, um, they're probably not going to end up with great results. Because no matter how accurate your timer is, and no matter how well the recipe was written, um, there's just so many variables. And you know, your stove is not exactly the same as the stove the recipe was tested on. Your pan's not exactly the same. Your onion is probably not the same as the onion that was that it was tested with. So no matter how well a recipe is tested, um, you're never going to nail down an exact amount of time uh, that something is going to take to cook. So it's 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 generally a pretty poor idea to, to to rely on a timer to say when like your onions are sautéed enough. Um, you really do want to to use all your senses and, and use your nose, use your ears, uh, use your eyes, and just pay, just pay attention to everything as it's going on and. And, and the more you do this, the more sort of second nature it becomes. Um, so, you know, the first few times you're sauteing an onion, you might have to pay very careful attention with all of your senses. Um, later on, as you get as you get more and more used to it, um, you, you'll you'll start to rely maybe whichever one's most comfortable for you. For me, it's it's really my ears that I rely most on uh, for things like that. But it, you might find that your your eyes are more reliable. But but it'll become second nature as, as you practice it more. I'm going to practice the ear technique because it's not something, I mean, unless it's blaring, you know, like you, uh, you right. really hear something, you know, sort of going off the rails in the kitchen with the snap crackle pop, but right. the, or the, the or subtlety, the smoke alarm. yes, or the smoke alarm, but it's the, the, the more, the more subtle aspect of this is what I, what I think you're talking mm-hmm. about. You mentioned about recipes and I want to uh-huh. chat a little bit about your philosophy for recipe development because you mm-hmm. are a creative guy, right? You know, mm-hmm. you've uh, created a lot of recipes that are in your book, um, what goes into developing a recipe? Um, well, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. You know, mo- most of the recipes, particularly the ones in the book, um, the, the recipes in the book um, are, are all sort of classic American dishes. So there, there's nothing hugely surprising about what's, what's in there. Um, um, and, and, you know, and, and that was a very conscious decision because, I, you know, I see the recipes almost as sort of like the, the anchor point, the, the, the thing that you can connect to so that then you, it, help, it helps you understand the science around it a little bit better. Um, but, you know, when, when I'm developing a recipe, say I'm, say I'm looking for a recipe for meatloaf, um, you know, for me, first of all, the, the recipe I'm writing, there has to be a reason for it to exist. It can't just be um, an, another recipe just like all the other ones out there because there's already en- there's already tons of meatloaf recipes out there, you know. Um, so, but but for me, a recipe, recipe development always begins with always begins with research, um, um, and that means, you know, in the case of meatloaf, it would mean all right, look at look looking at the history of, of meatloaf, um, and more importantly, looking at what position meatloaf. Um, 
holds in the in the minds uh, and the palates of people across the country. Um, so often that'll mean you know going to social media and asking people, uh, you know, what does meatloaf mean to you, or what's your favorite kind of meatloaf, or did you eat meatloaf growing up? Um, because when I'm you know when I'm developing a recipe for meatloaf, I I I don't take this sort of uh, modern chef approach where I'm sort of deconstructing and reconstructing and reinterpreting <laughs> it. Um, I want I want my the meatloaf. You know, and, and I think most of my readers want, if they follow a recipe for meatloaf, they want to come out with something that they instantly recognize as meatloaf. And it hits all those right sort of meatloaf. You know, it, it has a very high level of meatloafiness in that. Um, it, it, and, and, and so that means that you have to sort of respect the dish's orig- origins, um, respect its history, respect its place within um, the, uh, the, the cultural palate. Um, um, and, and, and from there, that's when you try and sort of start thinking, OK, well, where, you know, where can this recipe sort of be improved or maybe where, where can I um, optimize it uh, or, or sometimes it's how can I make it more foolproof um, um, or how can I make it more efficient? Um, and and, and that's, that's sort of what I do. I, I, I come up with a sort of base set of parameters, like a, a great meatloaf must have these key qualities to it. Um, now, how do I optimize those things? Um, and, and, that, and, 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 and what problems do people have with meatloaf? And that, that's really sort of where my testing process and recipe development process comes from. So it, really, it's about meaning, you know, the meatloaf with meaning. You're, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, meatloaf, meatloaf does have meaning to a lot of people. It's oh, my gosh. Yeah. Comfort. <laughs> Come on. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you're not going to be comforted by, uh, by you, you, you might be intrigued or challenged by a very chefy uh, version of a meatloaf, but you're probably not going to be comforted by it. You want, you want, you know, the, the whole book and, and most of what I do is about home cooking. And it's, a, it's about making sure that you know, if you if you make this recipe, you're going to you're going to be happy with it. Um, and, and, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of my my philosophy on, 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 on healthy eating as well. You know, a lot a lot of people ask me, um, you know, the types of recipes you write, how like how are you not a blimp? Um, and, and the real answer is that, these, I, you know, I, I write about macaroni and cheese and I write about meatloaf, but it's not like I eat those every day. Um, my, my real philosophy is that, you know, if for the one time a year or maybe two times a year that I'm going to make macaroni and cheese or meatloaf, um, I want that to be the best macaroni and cheese and the best meatloaf I can possibly make so that it's going to keep me satisfied. Um, but, but, you know, they, they honestly, most of the recipes in, in the book are not recipes that you, that you should make every day or, or will even want to make every day. Um, they're, they're things that are, that are going to be, you know, sort of more um, celebratory things and more and more special treats. The book is the food lab better home cooking through science, which is a New York Times bestseller, and it's available wherever books are sold. Kenji, we've run out of time, and I want to give our listeners your contact information. The website is KenjiLopezAlt.com. On Twitter, you can be found at The Food Lab, and on Facebook, The Food Lab Recipes. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. 
Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we're talking about summer eats, cooking with your heart and your head. My next guest, Cara Mangini, originally joined us for a conversation in November of 2016. So we're coming back at you with a gem from the library. Let's join the conversation. We are talking about food. We are talking about food, glorious food, and the smoking hot, bountiful harvest of edible riches that abound us. My next guest is known as the vegetable butcher, Cara Mangini, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and worked at some of New York's and Napa Valley's top culinary destination. Cara Mangini developed a passion for produce at its peak and honed her skills in its selection and preparation. Ever since, she's been on a mission to put vegetables at the center of the American plate. Kara's food career started at a culinary arts degree, or with a culinary arts degree, I should say, from the Natural Gourmet Institute in New York City as a vegetable butcher at Mario Batali's Italy. She immersed herself in everything vegetable. There, she discovered a passion for educating customers to select and prepare produce in new and exciting ways. She is now the proud owner and executive chef of Little Eater in Columbus, Ohio, a produce-inspired restaurant, and Little Eater Produce and Provisions, an associated local and artisanal food boutique also in Columbus, located in its historic North Market District, which is actually a pretty cool area. On top of which, Kara is the author of The Vegetable Butcher, How to Select, Prep, Slice, Dice, and Masterfully Cook Vegetables from Artichokes to Zucchini. And I also want to add that Kara is also the proud mama to a brand new sweet baby girl. Welcome, Kara Mangini. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be talking with you. Likewise, let's let's get into um, the cookbook because this is a very unique cookbook. One does not often put the two words vegetable and butcher together up until now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I well, I appreciate it. It is unique, and you know the the goal is to provide both those basic uh, techniques and knife skills that will help to make vegetables, cooking with vegetables. Uh, easier, you know, for everyday cooking, um, and also provide some really, I think, inspirational recipes that will get you excited to cook with these wonderful ingredients. And the book, actually, it's, it is beautiful. The photographs of the food will make you salivate. And I like what you talk about, the, the butchery being the knife work, because we don't often associate the art of, of the knife and cutting with the preparation required to really enhance the flavor of these vegetables. And there are so many vegetables and we're getting so sophisticated with what's become available to us. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that 
vegetables, you know, in so much of my work, I found that vegetables can actually be quite intimidating for people. And a lot of that has to do with not quite understanding how to approach them. So, you know, my goal with this book and in all my work is for people to be able to go to wherever you shop for produce. If it's a farmer's market or you get a farm box or you go to the supermarket, that you can pick up any piece of produce at any time of year and know that, uh, you know, you're going to be able to turn that into a meal. And I think knife skills and knowing how to select and store uh, and, again, pick up your knife uh, and turn that into uh, into a meal um, is going to make that all easier for you and just, you know, uh, much more uh, exciting and approachable. You know, let's talk a little bit about a couple of intimidating vegetables. One for me was fava bean. Yes. The other is the head of a cauliflower. Not, not, you know, not, you know, chopping cauliflower and sauteing it or steaming it, but it's become quite fashionable to take the whole head and prepare it, but it's intimidating. Absolutely. And I think with cauliflower in particular, you know, I share in the book a, I think a really simple sort of a reverent um, technique for breaking down a head of cauliflower quite quickly. If you cut it in half from the crown uh, to the base right through the middle and then cut it into quarters in the same way from top to bottom, then you can cut uh, using your knife at an angle. You cut the florets in one swoop right off of the core. Uh, And I love that technique. You know, when you're roasting or you're turning that cauliflower into a puree, you know, you don't, it doesn't really matter exactly what those florets look like they just need to be in even pieces so I love that technique and they're of course step-by-step photos in the book um, that show you how to do that and then when it comes to fava beans you know there's such a a special vegetable uh, and they do require a little bit of work you have to blanch them you have to essentially peel the beans out of the pod and then there's another little skin that those beans sit in uh, and you have to cook them briefly in order for those skins just to slip right off the bean. So they take a little bit of work, but I think there's great reward uh, because they offer just incredible flavor, uh, and there's so many fun things that you can do with fava beans. Well, I uh, live by the beach in Malibu. This is where we broadcast our consciously prepared brain food, and there is a... um, a gentlewoman farmer not far from me that grows fava beans and the first time I made them from her harvest I learned of this multiple step process but what I love about that bean is for those of us that don't eat meat or eat a lot of it that it's a very hearty chewy satisfying vegetable absolutely I think there's just you know it it is uh, it's satisfying, exactly as you said it, and they are uh, a real sign of spring, certainly, uh, and then there's usually another crop. In California, you have access to them, um, you know, uh, for quite a long time, and there's another good crop usually in the fall, um, and they're just a really special vegetable, uh, and of course, in the book, there's a wonderful recipe for uh, a puree that I I love, really simple, uh, and you know, I think there's something to sort of zen and, and fun about preparing that multi-step process uh, of preparing them. So I agree. You come, I want to I ask you a little bit about your name because for those that don't speak Italian, <laughs> you, you, you are your name. Yes. So I, uh, my last name uh, is, uh, there's a, 
a very loose translation. It translates to little eater uh, in Italian. And so I've uh, based my my business, my restaurant name is Little Eater, um, and I think I, you know I I didn't always know it, but I think I was always destined to to work in food. That you know I've always food has always navigated uh, my life and my travels, and at a very young age, I think I knew that something really magical happened around a table, and I come from a big Italian family where you know, food and everything that happens at a table was the center of my universe from a very young age. And I knew that I wanted to create something and build a business and a life that centered around, you know, creating those same kind of celebrations and moments throughout the year. And, you know, it's what I love about vegetables is that, you know, nature and, of course, the work of our hardworking farmers um, gives us signals and little moments to celebrate as, you know, these ingredients are coming out of the ground. And your um, grandfather and great grandfather were both butchers. So this this knife this knifesmanship <laughs> comes from somewhere. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I my uh, great grandfather and grandfather were traditional meat butchers, and you know I think I I have a real appreciation for that craft. You know, and dedicating your life toward the pursuit of perfecting a, a particular craft. And I think, you know, I went in a different direction with vegetables and vegetable butchery. Um, but, you know, I certainly got from them a not only a sense of entrepreneurship and that entrepreneurial spirit, uh, but certainly an appreciation for good quality ingredients and, and beautiful food and, uh, and feeding people. You used to work at Italy, and for those, and we don't mean Italy as in the country. We mean Italy, which is an entirely different country and destination in New York yeah. City. Yeah. <laughs> it is a little country that that place. Um, it's a it's a special place. Uh, there's now two locations in New York City, and one in Chicago. Is there one coming to Los Angeles? I have heard a rumor, and I have been I've... tracking the big Italy uh, park that is going to be opening in Italy as well. Well, there, it's an exciting, you know, it's been hugely successful. And for me, it was a very special experience. The whole place really is dedicated to supporting cooking at home. And it's an enormous Italian food emporium. Uh, and I worked in the vegetable restaurant and was a vegetable butcher there. And what I found in that experience was, you know, there are people from all over the country coming through those doors uh, and, you know, the simplest techniques and tricks that I was sharing with people when it came to vegetables really uh, was helpful for people and sort of blew their minds. You know, just really simple little ways to prepare something or I provide advice on, you know, what vegetables to choose and bring home and, and cook quickly, get them on the table. And I really, it was a formative experience because it showed me that, you know, their vegetable education and in particular, you know, how to handle uh, vegetables when it came to, to butchery and simple preparations was very much needed, I think, in our culture. It wasn't quite second nature to people, uh, and I wanted to, to, after that experience, really help to make vegetable cooking vegetables much more intuitive and second nature in our culture. Well, I applaud you for that because I think people do have a, a challenging time um, with vegetables, we tend to go for easy. We tend to think of it, it's, it's, it's not the primary focus of the meal. And it should be because it is probably the most um, healthful and beneficial to us. We're going to take a break in a minute. But before we go out, I want you to just say a word about cutlery and how probably 99% of us have 
dull knives in our kitchen and it's not helping our our food prep and our food taste. You are right. So, you know, the number one essential next to your hands in the kitchen, I think, is a, a good chef's knife, and I recommend an 8-inch chef's knife. Uh, it will give you the room and leverage and working in all different kinds of vegetables. I don't think you need that huge butcher block of knives that the knife companies make you think you need. You know, I think that's just overwhelming. You need that one good knife, uh, and you need to keep it sharp. It's really important. It's when accidents happen is when it's dull. And, you know, your knife should do much of the work for you. And I think sometimes that feeling like, you know, this is uh, a challenge or overwhelming to do all that work is because uh, it, it feels like a chore when when, when you're doing all the work and your knife isn't. So you got to keep your knife sharp um, with a honing steel. Uh, and in the book, of course, I show how to, how to use the honing steel. And then, um, and then you need to bring it in to actually sharpen it um, and have a professional sharpener uh, do that for you. Let's go off to break, and when we come back, I want to talk a bit a bit about the, the the bounty of the harvest that is around us right now, and how to select those vegetables. Uh, we'll be right back, but before we go, I want to give contact information to learn more about Cara Mangini's work. Please visit www.littleeater.com. On Twitter, that handle is at Cara Mangini, and on Facebook, Little Eater. The book is The Vegetable Butcher, How to Select, Prep, Slice, Dice, and Masterfully Cook Vegetables from Artichokes to Zucchini. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation with Cara Mangini that first took place in November of 2016. Download and share this podcast because we are talking about the smoking hot, bountiful harvest, harvest of edible riches with my guest today, Cara Mangini. She is the author of the Vegetable Butcher. She is also the proprietor and executive chef 
of Little Eater in Columbus, Ohio, and she is rocking the world with awesome vegetables and really um, placing vegetables at the center of the plate rather than off to the side. Kara, let's talk about what is around us right now, what we should be looking for in our markets and some inspirational ideas of what to do with those veggies. Well, my favorites right now are, I love the sweet potatoes, delicata squash, and really any of the winter uh, squashes. Celery root is wonderful. Uh, You know, it's a time of year where just there's so many things available to us. Uh, and it's and it's also that time you really feel like getting into the kitchen and, and cooking. So it's really exciting. Um, also, broccoli and cauliflower, uh, all of those brassicas are, are certainly uh, out uh, and looking beautiful. And, the, and, and when you say beautiful, they really are um, physically beautiful and look beautiful on the plate, occupying the center of the plate. You know, I mean, we all we all need a protein source. I'm not telling people to go out and not have animal protein or other forms of protein, but these vegetables and how they're appearing in our markets are so luscious um, and so filling. Absolutely. You know, and I, that's my goal is that, you know, I think we naturally – are attracted to these ingredients, these vegetables. They really are beautiful, and it's always amazing to me that, uh, you know, nature provides these uh, incredible riches. And, uh, and again, of course, with the work of, of our hardworking farmers. Um, and, you know, it, it, they provide also just such a range of, um, a range of different flavors and textures uh, and colors, and I think it's a real, you know, joy uh, to eat and, and to really taste each moment of the year through these ingredients. Um, and, you know, they absolutely, when you put vegetables at the center, center of your plate, uh, you certainly can be uh, satisfied and create really balanced meals uh, and with them really as the star and the focus. Speaking of thanking the farmer, I live not far from a very cool kale farmer. And um, at first, when he started growing kale, he talked about like nobody wanting to eat it. You know, this was a few years back. And now, um, this past week, uh, in the local farms just north of where I live, they were giving away kale on the side of the road. It was so cool. Oh, how cool. Yes. Yeah, now they, I'm sure, are producing tons and tons, as it certainly is a uh, a popular one. And I think, you know, in terms of greens, there are other ones. I, I love kale uh, and so many different varieties that are available now, and I think they're all wonderful, and you can certainly use them uh, interchangeably. Um, but there are also things like, you know, Swiss chard. You could actually use raw, or you can saute in the same way, and they actually cook quite – it cooks quite – quickly and has a wonderful sweet flavor and you can use the the ribs um, are edible whereas for kale I think it can be a little bit tough uh, collard greens are, are wonderful mustard greens there's so many and we're lucky I think at this point um, in so many uh, areas to have so much variety when it comes to those greens let's talk about some of your favorite recipes someone says to you Kara make us the most exquisite vegetable meal using ingredients that are available now, what what pops into mind? Well, it 
it always is dependent on the season and the moment of the year. So my favorites are, you know, what's kind of just coming into season. Uh, right now, uh, in the fall, I love the fall farmer's market tacos. Uh, they are just filling and wonderful, and they're paired with uh, black beans and lime. Uh, they're stuffed with sweet potatoes and delicata squash and topped with cabbage. Uh, really, really wonderful. Um, in the winter, I love uh, celery root pot pie that's paired with apples really wonderful, just exactly what you want on a, on a cold winter day. Uh, in the spring, oh, there's so many uh, wonderful options. I love uh, using artichokes, an artichoke torta, which is a wonderful, um, almost like a frittata uh, recipe in the book that's wonderful, paired with a green salad, or Swiss chard crostata with a fennel seed crust. Uh, in the summer, uh, of course, options are endless. I love doing more of, you know, really simple cooking uh, on the grill, things that are, you know, the vegetables in the summer don't really um, require us to do much. We just need to kind of show them off and prepare them simply. Uh, so I love, uh, you know, a simple uh, pasta with zucchini, sweet corn, basil, and mozzarella. I love marinated basil and garlic peppers uh, on goat cheese tartines. Uh, you know, there are so many, there are so many options, and you've asked me a question where I can never choose just one. Uh, but <laughs> those are my favorites, I think, season to season. Uh, but but it's always it's always what's just coming on um, that that gets me excited, and I like to allow those vegetables that are just coming into season to really inspire the cooking that I do. Um, and I think the book, the way the book is organized, certainly allows you to to do that. Is to you know look at what is you know, what's just coming out at your market, um, bring it home and feel really confident knowing you're going to be able to turn that into a meal. Well, the book really is an explorer's feast. I mean, there are so many wonderful recipes, things that are that you would not really think to even pair together. And you mentioned the celery root pot pie, which I happen to have that happen to have opened to that page prior to you mentioning it. And um, pot pie is like the ultimate comfort food, right? Absolutely. And, you know, celery root is a gnarly looking root that, you know, I think can be one of those intimidating vegetables for people. And it has this wonderful earthiness, but also it can, when it, uh, when it cooks down, it actually becomes quite sweet, and it pairs wonderfully with sweet potato and apples. And is it is it's the ultimate uh, comfort food, and is it's a delicious, wonderful recipe. Speaking of comfort, and I mentioned at the beginning of the show that you recently became a mom, yeah. and your <laughs> baby is now all six months old. Yeah, so uh, the the book, you know, I, I had two babies at once, so the book came out uh, at the same time uh, that my baby did. So it was a it was an amazing week, uh, and uh, it's been certainly a very exciting time. And she's uh, she's growing up into uh, on book tour, so it's been it's been an adventure that I look forward to telling her about someday. And how has her presence in your life affected your cooking or the development of recipes or child-friendly, baby-friendly recipes? How is how has that evolved in the process? Because I would think you'd be you would be constantly thinking about how to make this Stella friendly. Absolutely. I mean, I think it shows me that ultimately it's really important to me that. Um, 
you know, uh, that vegetables are, are a natural part of the plate. Um, you know, I think that we all have have that experience as a child where vegetables uh, were sort of, we have a bad memory association with certain ones. Um, and, you know, now as a parent, uh, you know, I want to make sure that um, vegetables are uh, available to her and that, you know, hopefully don't create those those memory associations that will stick with her for life, that really if we prepare vegetables simply uh, and prepare them in the right way, that I think that we can, you know, um, hopefully from an early age make vegetables a much more natural and significant part of the plate in a way that, you know, our kids will grow up and enjoy and make a part of their life forever um, and make vegetables more of, you know, something you get to do and enjoy and celebrate rather than something that equates to sacrifice uh, or deprivation, uh, which I think sometimes, you know, vegetables can get a bad, a bad name for that and often starts in childhood. I agree. I have two kids. Um, one is in college. One is uh, a late teenager. One loves veggies, and the other one, like, I, I need to like sneak it in, you know. <laughs> yeah. Except kale chips, that he will eat prolifically. You turn anything or into a chip or a fry, right? And it's <laughs> and and they'll love it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very very interesting, but I I think you know, making vegetables a center of the plate when we're talking about health and actually cost benefit as well. You know, that you can feed a family quite economically and, and healthfully with a lot of vegetables and they're getting a huge amount of vitamins and, and, and nutrients from the, the, the harvest. You know, whatever is whatever is in those markets today and makes it onto our plates, we really can create something wonderful without spending a lot of money. And I think that that's also a concern for many people. Absolutely. I think it's really important. Um, and, and again, I think it goes back to having those skills and feeling like you have those back-of-the-pocket recipes. You can turn vegetables, uh, you know, you can pick them up, know how to store them, get really comfortable breaking them down, you know, knowing exactly how to peel them and how to cut them, uh, and then, you know, have those recipes that you can turn to that's going to get dinner on the table quickly and, and allow vegetables to really uh, be the star. And I think in order to, to really incorporate vegetables every day into our cooking and support our health, and uh, we have to have those skills collectively. It has to be much more intuitive and second nature to us. Otherwise, we're not going to want to do it. Uh, and it, we're going to turn toward the things that are more convenient. And off, often the things that are more convenient aren't necessarily the things that are, are best for us and are going to support our lives and our health. Beautifully said. We are out of time. I want to thank Kara Mangini for being with me today. The book is The Vegetable Butcher, How to Select prep, slice, dice, and masterfully cook vegetables from artichokes to zucchini. Thank you, Kara. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Kenji Lopez-Alt and Cara Mangini, wishing you kind thoughts, 
kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Tokinet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.